Hello, and welcome to the History of Religion podcast. I am Jay Graham, and this is episode 17 of the History of Christianity series titled An Actual Church. In the last episode, we looked at some challenges that were facing the Christian movement in the first half of the third century. Today, we will look at the church as it has developed thus far in its practice and structure. The third century is really where the church begins to solidify in itself. We saw how Cyprian really took hold of the idea of the church as a structure, holding power, centered around the bishop, and having the final say in theological matters. And then we saw how Callistus came out on top with Hippolytus, even though Hippolytus had more of what will become the Orthodox theology. It was Callistus's structural authority in the church that won out. The major development during the third century was that the church structure became solidified. Three main positions developed in the church, the bishop, the presbyter, sometimes called the elder, and the deacon. There was still much diversity, and each church may have done things a little bit different, but the bishop was without a doubt gaining power as the primary position in the church. Those bishops would write to other churches to give advice, and as we have seen, sometimes argue with other bishops. Bishops really started requiring the church to recognize their authority. An example was marriage. Bishops began requiring Christians to tell them about their marriages. Marriage was a tricky thing for the Christians at this time. In Roman society, marriage was based on the husband's social status. So if a woman of higher status married a man of lower status, there were problems. The church at this time was made up of mainly lower class men and higher class women. The women were the powerhouses of the early church. So many times the marriage would have been only in the church in order to keep the societal status of the woman intact. The state official marriage would not be done. Women were a major part of the church, particularly widows. Widows were in the New Testament supposed to receive special support from the church. The reason for this is that in the Roman context, a widow did not have any other means of support if her husband was dead and she converted to Christianity. Her kids may have even disowned her and she was unable to remarry in the eyes of many Christians. Thus, the church had to take care of the widows. What they would do is give a widow a job in the church or some sort of ministry in order to compensate. So the work that was being done in the church became widow-dependent in some sense. Women would sometimes not even marry in order to do the work. This is when the term widow took on a new meaning and included virgins and other women who took up the ministry rather than get married. This was the foundation for later feminine monasticism, as Justo Gonzalez notes. The worship service had become standardized by the 3rd century as well. We have already spoken about the service in earlier episodes, but it deserves repeating here. The service was broken up into two parts. The first was the reading of the scripture, commentary on that scripture, prayer, and some hymnal singing. The second part was only for the baptized Christians, and it was communion, when bread and wine were given as the body and blood of Christ. They used a common cup to drink from, and the service ended with a benediction. Communion was a very important part of the church, and it was sometimes done in the catacombs with the dead. The reason was not simply to hide from authority, even though that may have been a reason why in very few cases. But rather, they believed that communion joined them to the living church and to the dead church, so the martyrs and others who were located in the catacombs. When the congregations and cities grew too large, they had to split and meet in different locations. This was a problem because the unity was the focus of many in the church. So the bishop would take a piece of bread and give it to each of the congregations around the city for all of them to be united when they took communion. The first three centuries of Christianity sees the church filled with lower classes, even though we have noted how it is making its way up the social ladder. The movement was one of the poor, the women, the outcast, and the like. It offered salvation from their present situations and gave them purpose where they were, even if they were slaves. 
one of the main purposes given was to spread the faith itself. Just by looking at the numbers, Christianity was different. It spread like no other religion had or would. The closest to it would be the Islamic expansion, but it was not filled with conversions, but more subjects of an empire as they conquered. Christianity has an extremely strong missionary tone to it. There is no evidence of organized efforts like what is seen in modern Christianity. Rather, it seems that it was just each individual Christian would witness to others and bring them into the church. There is not even much evidence of missionaries like Paul or Barnabas after the first generation of Christians. So the movement was a grassroots, as it would be for the first few centuries. The meeting places up until the third century were houses. This did not lend itself to things such as art or symbols. Yet the Christians got creative with it. The most popular image they came up with was the fish, which is still seen today on the back of cars driven by speeding reckless middle-aged women in the United States. The fish was an important sign because it was an acronym in Greek. The Greek word for fish was ikathos, which stood for Jesus, Christ, Son of God, Savior. So the fish was put on epitaphs and other important Christian objects. Not only were the Christians being creative when they had to innovate, but they also adopted certain things from the culture itself. A great example was the sun worship that was becoming very popular in the empire. As we saw earlier with emperors who tried to reorganize the Roman religion to make it easier to control and simpler to understand, this affected dates on the calendar as Romans were all about their calendars. Christians, too, liked their calendars, as we saw with the issue of the date of Easter. Christians even split up their weeks with special days. Sunday was for celebration and church worship. Wednesday was a day of fasting. And Friday was a day of Lent, or remorse for sins. An important date on the Roman calendar was initiated with the worship of the sun. That day was December 25th, which was considered the birthday of the unconquered sun. The Christians will eventually take this Roman holiday and make it a Christian one. Instead of the unconquered son's birthday, it becomes the son of God's birthday. The proto-Orthodox movement did three things in the first three centuries that helped it to gain the upper hand against other sects like Gnosticism and Montanists. The first and most important was the development of the hierarchical church structure that had at its top the bishop. As the church grew, the more influence the bishop gained, until the bishop was over many smaller churches. By the end of the 3rd century, the city of Rome had over 40 individual congregations in it, all under one bishop. Cyprian exemplified how the bishop was becoming its own class within the Christian movement, what historians call the clericalization of the church life. As the bishop and elders gained more power, the role of the normal person in the church, called the laity, began to diminish. This meant that widows, who were so important to the early church, were becoming obsolete. This is how the church went from what was probably a majority female-filled movement and possibly woman-led Christian movement, to the exact opposite. At the top of the new pyramid of power was the bishop, who at this point was in charge of his see or his group of congregations, like the ones in Rome. Bishops did not really interfere with other bishops, so this created what we saw in the 3rd century where the bishop in Carthage, Cyprian, who was arguing with a bishop in Rome, Steve, both hold power and there is not really any third party that is over them that can help resolve the issues that arose. Yet, this system developed in the 3rd century. There was a bit of precedence for bishops meddling with other bishops, as the Epistle of Clements showed in the 1st century, and we discussed that in an earlier episode, yet that bishop really did not have any concrete authority over any others, just some sway depending on where they were from and if they had written something interesting or had works published or had even been persecuted, as we saw with Origen, who was not a bishop even. In the 260s, that changed. A bishop named Paul of Samosota taught the doctrine that Jesus was adopted by God at his baptism. This became known as, wait for it, 
adoptionism. Paul was a bishop and held some sway, but his teachings were unacceptable to the bishops in other areas. So in 268 at Antioch, bishops met officially to excommunicate another bishop. This was the point where bishops now had power over other bishops something that will eventually lead to the bishop in Rome having ultimate authority. Not only this, but the meeting of bishops was probably held in the first church building ever built in an actual city. A church in the sense of what we think of it today. There may have been many buildings used for Christian services up until that point, but the first actual one built that was large enough on scale to be considered a church was built in Antioch in 256. The bishop's decision in that church at that time to excommunicate really meant nothing. There was still nothing that they could do to enforce their decision, but the president had been set. When the Christians do have power, they will know how to use it. The second major development for Christianity was the creation of creeds. We discussed creeds a bit, and they will continue to be formed during the third century. They allowed the church structure to have control over theology of the layman, which meant that they had some control and influence when they argued with other such movements as the Gnostics and Montanists. Furthermore, the third development was the canon, which is not really developed, but is well on its way by this time. All of the pieces for the canon are present in the third century. There are just questions about which ones make it in or not. In the third century, there were issues with Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, John's three epistles, Revelation, 1st and 2nd Clements, Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of Barnabas, the Apocalypse of Peter, and the Book of Wisdom. There were other discussions going on at the time, and all of them will be settled in the 4th century. But the fact that at this point, there was not centralized power of the church that had any authority to make decisions on the canon that would be followed by the rest of the proto-Orthodox movement. Thus, what we are left with in the second half of the 3rd century is a canon that is almost developed, a theology that is starting to take shape, and all of it at the mercy of bishops who decide those things but at this point in time do not have the full authority to enforce those decisions that they make. Basically then, what we have at this point is the framework of the church. What the church needs now is the power to give life to that framework. Once the bishops have real authority, then the other sects of Christianity, like Gnosticism, will fade into the distance as they are chased away by the clergy and the church. It is a good point now to stop, and we will come back next time, and we will look at the developments in the second half of the third century. So I hope to see you then, here, on the History of Religion podcast.